today's scripture is 1 Peter 1, 3-12. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope, to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though uh, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with the glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the suffering of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you, though those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. This is the word of God. All right, thank you, T. Let me pray. <clears throat> Father, we stop and pray before we attend to the preaching of your word, not because this is what we always do, but because rather we recognize that all power and all strength comes from you. And so we're asking that you would help this time today to be impactful. We're praying that you would work through the preaching of your word. We know that the power lies not in my words, but it lies in your word. And as we're studying First Peter today, it lies in the book of First Peter. And the fact that your Holy Spirit inspired Peter to write what he wrote here. Father, we are asking that your Spirit would be present with us today and would work. That it would bring conviction where necessary. Encouragement where needed. And ultimately that it would draw our attention upward. That our eyes would be focused upon you. That we would look to you as the source of all life. That we would see you as indeed the living hope that you are. Father, we ask that you would be gracious to us. We know that there's always distractions when we come here on a Sunday. There's always things that we could have our mind focused on. But Father, we pray that we would be honed in here and that we'd be ready to hear from your word. God, help us. Help us. Help us to hear your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So it's been said before that everything is bigger in Texas. And as a guy who lived in Texas for five years, I can attest that while that's not always true, in some cases it is indeed true that everything is bigger in, te- in Texas. Especially, I think that's probably true as it relates to high school athletics and especially high school football. As Exhibit A, I might present to you Eagle Stadium in Allen, Texas. Owned and operated by the Allen Independent School District, the stadium opened in August 2012 to a price tag just south of $60 million dollars. Now listen, I know you're from New York, and you think about real estate prices different than any people I've ever met before. And so when you hear that number, you may think something radically different than the people in Texas. You may think, oh, $60 million. Sounds like a nice three-apartment uh, room in, in Manhattan, right? I don't know what you think when you hear that, but I'll say this. In Allen, Texas, that's a lot of money. And the reason I say that in part is because there was a lot of uproar before the stadium was built at the price tag. And just at the -the over-the-top features of the stadium. The stadium was built to see 18,000 spectators, 
mind you, for high school football, had a 38-foot video board, a three-tiered press box, and facilities underneath the stadium for weightlifting, golf, and wrestling. Now, to be fair and to give some context, in the state of Texas, this 18,000-seat stadium was only the sixth-largest high school stadium. However, it was the most expensive, or one of the most expensive in all of the country, which is why it was so shocking that just 18 months after the stadium opened, it was closed for safety reasons. Almost immediately when the stadium first opened, they noticed that there were small cracks that were appearing, but over time those cracks magnified and some started to spread out to up to three quarters of an inch. And so in February 2014, less than 18 months after they opened this $60 million stadium, it was closed down for safety concerns. And to this point, has still not been reopened. Now, certainly, I don't want to make light of any negative issues, and I'm sure there are people who may have lost their jobs through this. But setting aside those negative issues, I'll say this. This situation is a dream for a preacher like me. There are so many illustrations that can come out of this that I could probably have a month's worth of sermon illustrations just based on this one incident alone. But as it relates to 1 Peter 1, I think that there is one word picture or analogy or illustration that comes to the surface. And the analogy is simply this, that the foundation matters. The foundation matters. It doesn't matter how many seats you have or how great your scoreboard is or how many facilities you have underneath or how big your press box is. If you have a bad foundation, you have a problem on your hands. The same is true for the Christian life. It doesn't matter how religious you appear to be. It doesn't matter how much you know in terms of facts. It doesn't matter if you have the appearance of being a very committed Christian and everyone around you thinks that you look like a committed Christian. At the end of the day, if you don't have the right foundation, you have an issue. Last week we started the book of 1 Peter, and we pointed out that what Peter is going to do throughout this letter is he's going to encourage Christians, and he's going to implore them to live differently. To live differently, especially in the face of suffering. But to do that, before he gets there, he knows that the right foundation must be in place. And that's why as he begins the body of the letter here in 1 Peter 1, instead of jumping into this idea of here's how you should live differently, or here's why you should be urgent about this, instead he starts by reminding us of the foundation. Before he gets to the particulars of what it means to live differently, which he'll start to do soon, he wants to make sure that we have the right understanding in place so that we can then live differently. And that's why he opens the way he does. Verse 3, this is the first verse of the main body of the letter. It says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now remember, he's writing a letter in which, for the most part, he's going to be imploring people, live differently. In light of the suffering that you're facing, live a holy life that draws attention to the gospel. But instead of starting with instructions about how to live, he instead starts by saying this, praise be to God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is actually consistent with the introduction. Remember last week in verses 1 and 2 when Peter was introducing himself, he referred to the believers as elect exiles. We said this was a reference to the fact that this is not their home. But then immediately after that, he begins to emphasize the work of God. They were saved by the foreknowledge of God, sanctified by the Spirit, so that they can then obey Jesus. But it's the work of God that was emphasized in the introduction, and this is exactly what Peter is doing here. He's reminding the Christians, he's saying, praise be to God. He's setting the foundation in place. If he's going to tell us how to live, he has to first start by reminding us who God is and what God has done. This is the way he starts. 
And so and then in verses 3 through 5, he proceeds to tell us why we should be thankful, why we should praise him. So let's read the rest of that verse, then verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So why is God the Father to be praised? Why is he to be praised? Well, verse 3 would say it's because he has saved us. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope. Now, you may remember this phrase, born again, from John chapter 3. It's probably the most famous occurrence of the phrase born again in the Bible. Uh, You may remember the story. Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the middle of the night, and Nicodemus says, well, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? Or what must I do to see the kingdom of God? And Jesus says, No one will see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Now, over the years, that phrase has come to take on a life of its own. Sometimes people use the phrase negatively to describe someone they think is a radical Christian. They'll say something like, well, he's a born-again or she's a born-again Christian. Or sometimes people will use it to make distinctions. In fact, sometimes when newspapers put out surveys, whether they be political or some other nature, they'll ask the question, are you a Christian? And then they say, well, are you a born-again Christian? So they ask the question, are you Christian? Yes. Well, are you a born-again Christian? Well, if you've read John 3, you know that's a crazy question. Because to be a Christian is to be born again. It means that you have become a new creation. The theological term would be regeneration. When you turn to Christ, you are regenerated. You are made new. When you turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ, at that moment, you are given new life. 2 Corinthians 5, the famous verse says it this way, 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. If you are a Christian, you have been born again. And the fact is that for all Christians, this is true, that we have become new people, that we have new desires, that we have new life. This is true for all of us. This is true for me. If you would go back to high school, when I was in high school, and you would meet the high school me, You would think, first of all, what a cool guy. But then you would think, I don't know if you'd actually think that, but you would think if you were to compare him to now, you'd be like, is this the same person? And the answer to that is is honestly no. It's not the same person because I'm a new creation. I became a follower of Christ my freshman year of college, and, and I have new desires. The Spirit is within me, working within me to do a new and powerful work. When I trusted in Christ, I became a new person. I was born again. Now, does that mean that I lost all of my attributes or that I lost all of my characteristics? Well, of course not. It's not as if my parents showed up at college and they're like, where did our son go? We don't even know who he is anymore. No, they knew who I was. The same characteristics changed over, but I was a new person. I was a new person. I was born again. And this is true for every Christian. We have been born again. Now, Peter is clear. In fact, he seems to be going out of his way here in verse 3 to point out that this is not a work of our own doing. This is the work of God. Look at the language he uses. He says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. He has caused us to be born again through the resurrection of Christ. Well, if you think about this analogy of being born again, it actually kind of makes sense, right? And no one takes credit for their physical birth. I've never met a person who says, you know, my greatest accomplishment ever was I did a really great job on my day of birth. Well, no one says that because you contribute nothing to your birth. Whether you want to come out or not, you are coming. 
Right? It was not your choice. The same is true of your spiritual birth. Now, it's a little different in that, yes, we choose, but ultimately it is the work of God. He's the one who gets the credit. He's the one who gets the credit. Just like you wouldn't take the credit for your physical birth, we won't take the credit for our spiritual birth because he caused us to be born again. Now, at that same moment, we also chose to follow him, but all the glory and all the credit goes to him. This is why we praise him. This is why Peter starts by saying, praise be to God. He's caused us to be born again. And then he goes on to say, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope. Now, these are words that we'll preach. Right? This idea that we have a living hope. We don't just have hope. We don't have a false hope. We don't have a wishful thinking hope. We have a living hope. I was talking to a friend of mine this week, and he was describing a situation he was facing. He said, you know, I just feel hopeless. And given the circumstance that my friend was describing, I knew exactly where he was coming from. The situation that he was facing seemed like there was really no solution. But I tried to encourage my friend, who also happened to be a Christian. I said, it may feel like it's hopeless, but there's a difference between feeling helpless and actually being hopeless. There are situations that feel out of our control, and it feels like there's nothing we can do. But that doesn't mean there's no hope. Now, perhaps you're facing a situation currently that feels like there's little that you can do. Maybe you have a health issue that feels like it's just spiraling out of control. Or maybe you have a friend or a family member, or maybe a church friend, who you feel like is facing a situation and you just don't know what to do. You feel helpless. Maybe there's something going on at work. And no matter how hard you try, you feel like it just never gets corrected. I'm guessing that every person in this room, at least at some level, can relate to some situation that feels helpless. But do not mistake that feeling for hopelessness. As Christians, we have hope. It's not just hope. It's a living hope. It's a hope that breathes. It's a hope that persists. It's a hope that never fades. A living hope that God is good and he's in control. A living hope that God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. A living hope that believes the best days are still to come. And by best days, we're not just talking about here. We're talking about what is to come after this earth. In fact, that's what he's getting at in verses 4 and 5. Verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith, for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, I don't think there's any doubt that there's an Old Testament allusion here in verse 4. In the Old Testament, the people of God, the Jews, were promised an inheritance. And it just so happens that that inheritance was a land. It was the promised land. What Peter's doing here, just as he did in the first two verses, remember he used that phrase, the elect exiles of the dispersion. He's using a phrase that's loaded with Jewish history to remind the people that they are now the people of God. And what he's saying to them is that you too have an inheritance. It's just that your inheritance is better. The promised land could be threatened by foreign armies. The promised land could be ravaged by war. The promised land could be affected by drought. The promised land could be ravaged by sin. But what Peter is telling the believers here is that we have a better promise, that we have a better inheritance. We don't have an inheritance that can be threatened by foreign armies. We don't have an inheritance that can be harmed by drought. We don't have an inheritance that can be threatened by war or by the effects of sin. We have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Listen, uh, no matter how great the inheritance that you receive here from an earthly perspective, 
There's always the chance that that inheritance could run out, that you could squander the money, or that that inheritance, if it's a thing, could rust or be broken. But the inheritance that Peter's talking about here cannot in any way rust or be destroyed. It will never be threatened by natural disaster. It can never be taken away. It can never be defiled by sin. It is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Listen, people may take your money, and they may take your stuff. They may even take your health. They may even take your life. They can take your freedom, but they cannot touch your inheritance. If you are a believer in Christ, they cannot touch your inheritance because it is imperishable, undefiled, and it is unfading. Verse 4 reminds us that this is true because it's kept in heaven for us. The inheritance is that we will be with him. And we will reign forever in the new heaven and the new earth. This is our inheritance. And no one can take that inheritance. Not the government, not the most powerful people on earth, not even the spiritual forces of darkness. They can't touch it. Because this inheritance is imperishable, it's undefiled, and it's unfading. It's in part why we say we have a living hope. Because our hope cannot be dashed. Listen, if your hope is in your health, your health can go away. If your hope is in your money, your money might run out. If your hope is in the approval of people, it will come and go. If your hope is in your circumstances, your circumstances may get worse. But we have a living hope because we have a living Savior. And we have an inheritance that can never be threatened. It cannot be touched. But not only will God guard our inheritance, he will also guard us. This is actually a really important distinction in verses 4 and 5. Now verse 4 talks about this imperishable inheritance, but then look at verse 5. Who, it's referring back to the you in verse 4, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So verse 4 reminds us we have an inheritance. Verse 5 says that those who are genuine believers will be protected so they can enjoy that inheritance. That's a really important distinction. All right, think about this scenario for a second. Let's say that I offer you your dream house. I say I will give you the greatest house you can imagine. If you want a swimming pool, In your house, we will make it the nicest swimming pool ever. If you want Great Wolf Lodge in your house, we'll make it happen. If you want a golf course in your backyard, we can do it. If you want a shopping mall in your house, that's possible too. If you want soft serve ice cream machine, let's put that in there too. You want a huge play area for your kids, whatever it is, we will make it happen. And on top of that, I guarantee to you that no robber or no thief will ever be able to touch this house. It's a fabulous inheritance because nothing can ever threaten. There will be no fire. There will be no robbers. There will be no vandalization. Nothing can ever touch this house. Well, I would imagine you'd think, well, that's a pretty sweet deal. But what if I told you that that house is actually located on property owned by Vladimir Putin or by someone else, and his guards surround the property? Now, they can't touch it. right? They can't do anything to it, but they are not going to allow you onto that property. They're going to shoot down anyone who comes near or shoot down anything that comes near. Now, I know some of you are thinking, well, I'll just burrow underground or I'll fly in over. Those don't work in this illustration either, right? There's no way you can actually access it. That's the difference between verse 4 and verse 5. Verse 4 is we're going to keep the inheritance undefiled and unfading. Verse 5 is that God is going to protect the believers so they can get there. That's an important distinction. It's one thing to say, oh, you have an inheritance and nothing can threaten it. It's another to say, well, you'll actually be able to enjoy it. And that's exactly what verse 5 is saying. Verse 4, we have this inheritance. Verse 5, God is going to protect us. He's going to protect us. Now, to be clear, that doesn't mean that he'll physically protect us necessarily. 
The whole point of the book of 1 Peter is that suffering might come to Christians. And so clearly, Peter's not making the argument you'll be physically protected, necessarily. What he is saying is that you'll be spiritually protected, that he will bring you safely into his kingdom. And he'll do so by us continuing to have faith in Christ. Now, it's important to note, we do have a role to play here. And that is that we must persist in our faith. You can't say, well, I'm going to inherit the benefits of following Christ and not actually follow Christ. You can't say, well, I prayed a prayer when I was five or six and I said that I was trusting in Christ, but there's no evidence in my life that I'm actually doing it, but I think I'll enjoy the inheritance. No. Verse 5 is clear that it's by faith that we will enter into the kingdom. But note this, even that faith is a gift from God. So it's no wonder then that we praise him. It's no wonder we praise him. Right? He causes us to be born again to a living hope. He gives us an inheritance that cannot be touched, and he makes sure that we get there by giving us faith. So, of course, he gets the praise. Now, I think we have to admit, if we stop there, this would be great. Right? This, is, this is fantastic. It sounds easy. It sounds like an infomercial at this point, right? Do you want a living hope? Yes, there's more. Not only can you have a living hope, there's also an inheritance. There's also the fact he's going to protect you. In fact, sometimes this is the way in churches we talk about things. We talk about it as if it's an infomercial. Like following Jesus is going to be really easy because there's all these benefits that you are born again, that you have a living hope, that you get an inheritance, that he will protect you. But that's not the approach Peter takes here. That's not the approach Peter takes. Listen, Peter understood that there's a reason why Jesus said we need to pick up our cross. And Jesus didn't say, pick up your lawn chair and your iced tea. Right? He understood that to follow him meant difficulty. And so Peter doesn't shy away from that. We might be tempted to shy away from that. In fact, that's usually our tendency. We just want to emphasize all of the easy things about following Christ. But that's not the approach Peter takes. Instead, he acknowledges the difficulty. He acknowledges that there will be suffering if you follow Jesus. Look at verses 6 and 7. Verse 6. In this you rejoice, this whole aspect he's been talking about already, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perish those tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now there's two ways of looking at verses 6 and 7. One way is to look at this and be really discouraged. And to think to yourself, well, why? Why do we have to suffer? Why do we have to go through hard times? Why would God ever think it's necessary that we face trials of various kinds? That's one way of looking at it. Or another way of looking at verses 6 and 7 is to be encouraged. You're encouraged because you realize that God has a plan. And that all these things that are happening, maybe in your life, maybe in the life of people that you love, is not outside of his plan. That he knew this was going to happen too. Now, maybe you'll just dismiss it as the crazy preacher talking, but I'm in favor of the second view. I think this is encouraging. In fact, of all the verses in this passage, I found verses 6 and 7 to be the most encouraging this week. Now, let me tell you why I think these verses are encouraging. All right, let me give you a few reasons here. One is I think that these verses are realistic. Listen, I I don't need a Bible verse to tell me that people suffer because I see it. I, I don't need a Bible verse to tell me that people are going through trials because I know it's true. In fact, uh, I know several people here at New Hope who are going through trials right now. I'm sure you do too. It's been a long couple weeks for a lot of people at New Hope. And so we know that there are trials. We don't need a Bible verse necessarily to tell us that. But I'll tell you what, it's encouraging to know that there is a Bible verse. 
And that God knew that this was going to happen, that this was part of his plan, that he knew this was the reality of this world. And even more encouraging, I think it's helpful for us to know that he entered our world. He lived as a man, and he faced the same suffering. So yeah, we all know that there's suffering, but it is encouraging to know that God knows that too. And he recognizes that there will be trials. So that's one reason why I think verses 6 and 7 are encouraging. Here's another. I I like the verses 6 and 7 remind us that our suffering is temporary. Look at verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Though now for a little while. For a little while. Now, I don't think that means that our trials will necessarily last a couple hours or a couple of days or a couple of weeks or a couple of months or even a couple of years. It might last a lifetime. But in the grand scheme of eternity, what we are facing now, whatever trials you may be facing today, understand this, they are little in comparison to all of eternity. Now, I know it doesn't feel little when you're going through it. And I know that when you face 10 years of difficulty or 20 years or a lifetime of difficulty, it doesn't feel easy or it doesn't feel like a short time. But in the grand scheme of eternity, this is a little while. It's a little while. In fact, 2 Corinthians 4, you can turn back there for just a second. 2 Corinthians 4 essentially makes the same case. A powerful piece of scripture here in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 to 18. Verse 16 says this. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So Paul says that he's facing slight momentary affliction. Well, if you know anything about Paul's life, you know that his afflictions didn't seem slight or momentary at all. It seemed like they lasted the rest of his life as a Christian. It seemed like they were serious. In fact, eventually he was killed for his faith. So how can he say that? Well, he's saying that in light of eternity. And that's where we need to place our suffering in that context also. We need to understand that our suffering will only last for a little while if we are followers of Christ. Our afflictions are only momentary because our life on earth is but a breath compared to all of eternity. So I want to encourage you today, whatever trial you're facing, Or whatever trial friends of yours are facing, I just want you to know it won't last forever. It will not last forever. It will only last a little while. One day they will end. Now sadly, we can't make that same promise for those who don't know Christ or to those who don't know Christ. In fact, the Bible says that after those who don't know Christ die, they will then enter into punishment. And so we have to say that this is something that only belongs to those who are in Christ. This is a promise that there's joy to come, that we have an inheritance only for those who've trusted in Christ. And so over the years, we've said multiple reasons why you should follow Christ. This is just another. So that you can have these precious promises that one day it will end, that your trials are just for a little while. So I like verses 6 and 7 because they remind us our suffering is temporary. I also like these verses because they remind us our suffering has a purpose. Now, before we read verse 6 again, let me, let me just say this. There's always a danger when you talk about suffering that, um, that you might think, well, who does this guy think he is talking about suffering? He hasn't suffered like any of us have, or he hasn't suffered like I have. I, I think that's oftentimes why it's so hard to preach on a topic like this, because there's always people who have suffered more. And undoubtedly, there are people who have suffered way more than I have. 
And so understand this. My goal today is not to give you little nuggets of wisdom from me as to how to deal with suffering. My goal is to just tell you what the Word of God says. And so please don't hear this as me thinking that suffering is easy or that it's, it's simple or that you just kind of go through it. I don't feel that way at all. I know how hard suffering is. But what I do want to do is encourage you from what Scripture says. And when Peter's writing, keep in mind, he was a man who's familiar with suffering. This is not some naive person. If history is any clue, we'd be led to believe that Peter eventually was crucified upside down. And so we believe that Peter suffered, yes. And so understand this, when we read this and we talk about suffering have a purpose, we're not trying to just glibly say, oh, well, suffering's easy. We're not saying that. We're just trying to encourage here and say, this is what Scripture says. And so understand my goal today is not to be like, you know, I've got it all figured out. I've no, I don't feel that way at all. But my goal is just to share with you what Scripture says. And what Scripture says is there's a purpose in suffering. In fact, look at the language of 1 Peter 1, verse 6. Verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Those two words change everything, don't they? If necessary. If necessary, you've been grieved by trials. Well, who is it that determines what's necessary? Well, obviously, the implied person in this passage is God. God is the one who determines that these struggles we face are necessary. Now, it's worth pointing out that what you may deem to be necessary and what he may deem to be necessary are probably not the same. In fact, I'm certain they're probably not. What you need to know is that he's in control. And that he is working for our good if we are believers. Now, as Tom Schreiner points out, this does not mean that our sufferings are somehow enjoyable or that we should look for a specific reason to assign to every suffering or that we should minimize the evil actions of others in inflicting suffering. But what we can learn from verses 6 and 7 is that God knows what we need. He knows what is necessary. Now, is Peter talking here about people suffering for their faith? I think so. But if you take a broader biblical perspective, I don't think it's unfair to say that even in suffering that's not due to our faith, he is still working for our good if we are Christians. In fact, this is the argument Romans 8 makes, that God's working for our good in all things. And if we believe that he's in control and working for our good in all things, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that any suffering we face, face, whether it's related to our faith or not, is deemed necessary by him. Now, maybe you're thinking to yourself right now, well, I don't get how what I'm going through is necessary right now. Or maybe you're saying, well, you know, I have a friend of mine and they're going through something and I don't get how that is necessary. How is that necessary? And the honest answer to that question is, we don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not the one who determines what's necessary and neither are you. But I do know is this, there is a purpose. And in fact, verse 7 opens up the curtains a little bit and we see one of the purposes of suffering. Verse 7 says this, so that Let's go back to verse 6 just to give the context here. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Suffering is a way of solidifying our faith. It's a way of testing our faith and proving our faith to be genuine. Now, the analogy of gold here is probably helpful. It's actually maybe used in a couple different ways in this passage. But one of the ways you burn away impurities from a precious metal is by putting fire to it. In the same way, our faith often acts that way, that the impurities of our faith are burnt away by suffering and trials. Now, sometimes people will go through trials 
and their faith will be burned up. And they'll realize that there never really was a genuine faith. We've probably all met Christians who went through a hard time and they abandoned the faith. Those people probably never were believers to start with. The fire exposed that it wasn't that actual precious metal. But I'm guessing that you've also met many Christians who've gone through trials and when they've come out, they're much stronger on the other side. That's because of what 1 Peter 1 is talking about. In fact, most of the Christians I respect most have often gone through difficult times. And if you look at the history of the church, the people, the men and women that God has used the most are often those who have suffered much as well. Listen, God allows suffering so that our faith can be strengthened and so that it can be shown to be genuine. Listen, it's one thing to say, it is well, as the old song does, when everything is easy. It's another thing to say, it is well, when the sea billows are indeed rolling. Right? It's one thing for us to say, oh yeah, it's great when everything in life seems easy, but when things get difficult, for us to say, I still trust God, that shows the genuineness of our faith. So I just want to encourage you, if you're going through trials, maybe one of the reasons is so that he can prove the genuineness of your faith. And so that he can solidify it and actually make it stronger to burn away the impurities. Now maybe you're thinking, well, if I have to go through suffering to get a deeper faith, I don't really want a deeper faith. Just give me the shallow faith. That will be fine. But to say that, I think uh, misestimates or underestimates the value of a genuine deep faith. As Peter reminds us in verse 7, a precious faith like this is more valuable than gold. Gold will one day no longer matter. When Christ comes and he returns and there's new heaven, new earth, gold will not matter anymore, but our faith will last. Our faith, Peter tells us, is more precious than gold. It's more precious than gold. Listen, some of you may have really nice houses, and you may have a really healthy bank account, and you may have really nice stuff, but you are poor. Because you lack the treasure of greatest value, a deep faith in Christ that continues to grow roots. This is the, this is the treasure of the greatest value. Now, maybe you're saying, well, why, why if Peter's laying a foundation of things we should be thankful for, why in the world does he bring up suffering? Why doesn't he kind of just stick to stuff that makes us thankful, right? Why does he bring this up? Well, I think it's for a couple of reasons. I think that Peter knows reality, and he doesn't want to sugarcoat things. He doesn't want to make it seem as if this is going to be easy. Christianity is no pie-in-the-sky religion. Sometimes we make it sound like following Christ will make your life super easy, and there won't be any troubles, and that we'll just go around singing that Lego song. Everything is awesome, but that's not how Christianity works. That's not how life works, and Peter knows that. And he wants to encourage us that God knows our difficulties. And that, in fact, God is using those difficulties. Listen, Peter knows the reality of life in a fallen world, but he also knows the goodness of God. And that's why he brings this up. Listen, the foundation of Christianity is not meant to stand only when things are good. The foundation of Christianity is meant to stand even when the hurricanes come. I think that's why he brings up what he does here. Now, thankfully, thankfully, It seems that the people Peter are writing to, they get this. In fact, listen to the way that Peter describes their faith in verses 8 and 9. Verse 8, he says this, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So he emphasizes their faith. Though they have not seen him, they love him. And then he uses this really great phrase. He says that they are rejoicing with a joy that is inexpressible and filled 
with glory. Now keep in mind the background here. The people that Peter is writing to are being marginalized for their faith. They're, being, uh, they're facing social ostracism. They're facing financial difficulties because they are following Jesus Christ. And so this idea that they would have an inexpressible joy, well, that's, that's kind of unusual, right? Given the difficulties they're facing, this says something about the quality of their faith. They have a joy that is inexpressible, a joy that is filled with glory, a joy based on the fact that they've been rescued from their sin and one day they will be with him forever. Listen, Christianity is not a religion that is meant to survive times of toughness. It's meant to thrive in times of toughness. Why? Because then we learn when there's nothing else to trust in, there's only been one place to trust in anyway. It's in him. One of the things that separates us from the world around us is that we have a joy that's inexpressible even in the face of the harshest and most difficult times. Listen, if you go to Disney World and you see a bunch of happy people, you don't think to yourself, this is strange. But if you're at the cancer ward at the hospital and you see someone who has genuine joy, that makes you wonder. As Christians, we are to have a joy that is inexpressible because we have a Savior that does not change. We have a message that's more precious than gold. We have an inheritance that can never be taken. We have a hope that is living. Because of all that, we have an inexpressible joy. A joy that, like our inheritance, cannot be taken from us. A joy that persists when times are tough. A joy that endures even when the cupboard is bare. A joy that lasts even when the good times fade. A joy based on a risen Savior. A joy founded on eternal realities. A joy filled with hope. And not just any hope, mind you, but a living hope. Praise be to God, we have a living hope. And we have a great gospel to believe in. And in fact, that's the way this passage ends. With Peter reminding us how great the good news of Jesus Christ is. Verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Is revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you, and the things that have now been announced so that uh, announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Here's how good news, or here's how great the good news of the gospel is. Even the prophets of the Old Testament, the great men of faith, Isaiah, Jeremiah, people like that, even the angels long to understand the gospel more. The prophets prophesied about the coming Messiah, and they predicted certain things about him. But we are blessed enough to live in the time when those prophecies have come to fruition. Even the angels long to understand this mystery more. Again, Tom Schreiner, Old Testament prophets saw it from afar, and angels marvel when gazing upon what God has done in Christ, but the readers of 1 Peter actually experience it. This is what the prophets prophesied about, and what angels marveled at, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we get to live and experience it. Karen Job says, clearly the gospel message is of great value if it's the focus of attention of the prophets of old and the angels of heaven. Christians should therefore rejoice that they have obtained that precious message. And indeed, I think that's true. And not only should we rejoice, this is the foundation that all of life should be built on. This is how great the gospel of Jesus Christ is. This news that we were wicked sinners, straying from him, and God sent his son to rescue us paying the punishment for sin that we deserve to pay. Three days later, he rose from the dead that those who would repent of their sins and trust Christ, they too could conquer death. 
and have their sins forgiven. This message is what everything else should be built on. Your view of parenting, built on the gospel. Your view of what a marriage should look like, built on the gospel. Your view of money, your view of singleness, your view of sex, your view of sexuality, your view of work, your view of material possessions, your view of ethics, morality, all of these built on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Your view of death, your view of purpose and meaning, your view of suffering, your view of everything is to be built on this foundation. And this is why Peter starts the letter the way that he does. Because he wants to remind us that before we start thinking about how to live, we must remember who God is and what he's done. This is the foundation. That God has rescued us. That through Christ we've been born again. That we have a living hope. And we have an inheritance that will never fade away. The question is, is your life built on that foundation? The thing about a foundation is that it eventually gets exposed. You can have all the bells and whistles. You can have all the appearances of something great. But if your foundation is faulty, it will eventually expose itself. You can ask the people of Allen, Texas. So my question is, what is your foundation? Is your foundation the gospel of Jesus Christ? Or is it something else? Is it something else? Now, I'm not asking you what your foundation looks like it is. I'm asking you, what actually is your foundation? Perhaps if I were to ask your spouse or your kids, they could give me an honest answer. Oh, I know, based on this situation, this is what their foundation actually is. My question is, what is your foundation? I think there's only one answer to that question that will last. It's from the song that we sang earlier. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That is the song I hope our hearts are singing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the book of First Peter. We thank you for your word. You are good to us. And we pray that we would put our trust in you, the living hope. Father, help us to be people who praise you. Help us to have that foundation that we praise you and that we delight in the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.